Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems adopt technology. I am your host, Tiasha Zait, and today you're going to hear another discussion about the doctors on TikTok. Many jobs are predictable. Being a medical doctor on call for emergency cases is not one of them. On his regular week as an emergency surgeon on call, Karan Raj would see anyone with complaints in the abdominal area and would perform numerous emergency operations of appendicitis, hernia operations, perforated bowel or other abdominal related issues. While doing all this, his pager might warn him about a message or he could receive 20 calls during a two-hour emergency operation. Clinical reality is hard to imagine for those that are not experiencing it on a daily basis. It is because medicine is complex and demanding that doctors are well respected and have been seen as gods in the not-so-recent history. They are, however, very human, with their personal stories, families and ways to relax. 2020 seems to be a year in which TikTok is shedding light on the profession to a very wide public in a whole new way. Doctors produce medical education content, stories about what it takes to become a doctor, or short amusing videos aimed at entertainment, filmed during their breaks or after work. Karan Raj works at Frimley Park Hospital NHS Foundation Trust as a surgical registrar, but he is also an honorary lecturer at Imperial College London, a honorary senior lecturer at the Sunderland University, and he founded the Osseous Station, an online medical education website with videos explaining different medical topics. The OSI station is primarily targeted at medical students and has been around on YouTube for several years. So going to TikTok was the next natural step for Karan in sharing medical knowledge. In this discussion, we first took a few minutes to explain how his everyday work as a surgeon looks like, and then we moved to a discussion about the evolution of TikTok, which evolved from pure entertainment to an empowerment platform. We also discussed trends in new formats of presenting educational content and addressed issues such as Are new short-term attention span grabbing social media platforms harming general capability of people to have serious discussions that require digesting time-consuming texts, books or detailed research, or is that not a problem? If you're completely new to TikTok, I also recommend listening to the previous episode of this podcast, where I spoke with the creators behind Medicine Explained, a TikTok channel with over 1.1 million followers. You're also kindly invited to visit our website www.facesofdigitalhealth.com to browse and listen to other episodes as well or search through podcast content through episode summaries on our blog. Enjoy the show and if you will like what you will hear, do leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast. It really does help share the information about the podcast to others interested in digital health as well. Thank you. Karan, you are a surgeon. Can you tell me just a little bit uh, like how your typical week looks like? What kind of surgeries, for example, did you have to do this week? 
so this week I was on call, so I was the emergency surgeon on call, which means anyone who comes in in the emergency room presenting unwell with any complaints from the abdominal point of view, you know, appendicitis, hernia operations, perforated bowel or dead bowel, all of these things we would take for an emergency operation and we do either major or minor operations on them. So we don't really know what we'll find. It just, you know, depends on what type of patient shows up at the front door. Um, so this is an atypical week for me. When you're on call, we just don't really know what to expect. So it's mainly emergency surgery. How stressful is that compared to the expected surgeries that you do? Yeah, I mean, definitely stressful and you grow to cope with the stress as you get more experience with the job. So I'm in my seventh year now as a doctor and, you know, I've involved now in several years of surgical training, but certainly emergency surgery, when you don't know the nature of the workload that you'll expect, it's definitely stressful. And a lot of these patients, the nature of the surgery is time critical. So but when they come in, you need to make sure that they're resuscitated. So you need to give them antibiotics and fluids and make sure they're stable. And you need to do all of this and transfer them to the operating room, you know, in a rapid space of time so you can operate on them. The elective patients or these non-urgent patients that we expect, they're well, you know, if they don't have their surgery and if it's delayed for a week, a month, three months, nothing will probably happen to them. Uh, they might have the occasional pain or some symptoms, but for most people, for the non-urgent surgery, they'll be fine. They'll just be annoyed or upset or disappointed that their surgery didn't happen. But for often these emergency surgical patients, they're often very unwell and they need an emergency surgery within the space of, you know, 24 hours. And some of them need an emergency surgery within the space of an hour. So it's, it's stressful for them, stressful for me, stressful for all the staff involved. But you learn to cope with this as you get more experience. I don't know how large the hospital that you work in is, but I do wonder how many surgeons are on call usually because, uh, you know, um, surgeries, I imagine, don't take five minutes. They take longer. So if you have more emergency cases, what happens then? Yeah, so my hospital, I think, roughly has about a thousand bed capacity. So we have capacity for a thousand patients. Uh, typically on call, there would be myself as the, um, I'm in the UK, I'm called the general surgery registrar on call. So um, I'm the person kind of who would take all the referrals and I would make kind of the senior decisions uh, for the surgical patients, uh, you know, sort of minute to minute, hour to hour. And if I have any issues or any questions and I want to get more advice, I could speak to my boss, who is the overall consultant on call. So he's my senior and kind of the surgical boss. Uh, and he's also on call. We do a ward round together in the morning and then, you know, they'd be available by uh, phone at some point during the day. And if I need help with an operation or if it's a very technically challenging operation, uh, he would be performing it with me. So it would be us two on call and we have a team as well. We've got specialist nurses and also juniors who help with uh, jobs on the ward patients and things like that. Are the pagers still used in the hospital that you work in? Because I know that they were banned uh, last year. Yeah, we have, uh, you know, we have pagers and we have these kind of um, walkie-talkie type phones uh, or just these really basic Nokia type phones where you can just directly call other phones and landlines within the hospital and outside numbers using that phone. Um, 
But unfortunately, there are some emergencies for, you know, crash calls or cardiac arrests or trauma calls. You don't get the message on the phone. So you need to carry the bleep because the system hasn't fully changed over to uh, accommodate this kind of new system. So you need to carry a bleep and this phone, uh, which just you know makes things a bit more confusing. It's hard to imagine like how the work with all the notifications works like um, it's in IT systems. It's known that um, users can suffer from alert fatigue. But if you have uh, urgent uh, needs to communicate, uh, I wonder like to, to which extent does that interrupt your daily work too much? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a huge interruption because when you're doing a job, <clears throat> you might get you know, completely flooded with five or six calls within five minutes. And this not only affects maybe the current job you're doing. So say I'm in the middle of an emergency operation, uh, my phone will be, you know, at the side of the operating room and it might go off, you know, 20 times in the space of two hours when I'm doing the operation. And the noise of the phone and someone that answering the phone and trying to relay messages to me, you know, will potentially take away my focus from the patient who's asleep and I'm operating on, which is not good because I need to complete, give my full focus to the patient I'm operating on. Uh, so, you know, that's one thing. But also I need to be aware that the phone call that I'm getting might be something urgent for another sick patient and I might need to delegate that job to someone else. So that's stressful. Um, and also when you're with a patient, you're examining a patient or giving some bad news to a patient. And if your phone goes off, then again, that's, you know, disrupting the communication and the rapport you're building with that patient, which so uh, all of these things serve to just disrupt the relationship between the healthcare staff or doctor and patient and just disrupting your focus during the day. Uh, but, you know, unfortunately, it's a necessary evil. Otherwise, without some form of communication, what do you do unless there's a, a central point who takes all the calls, uh, you know, almost like a radio tower and then comes and gives it to you. I, I don't really know what the solution is, but, uh, you know, something needs to be done. Uh, an opportunity for uh, digital health or healthcare entrepreneurs, I'm definitely uh, sure. Is it um, mostly that other surgeons would call you like for second opinions or is it uh, doctors from other specialties as well? So with regards to other surgeons, I mean, as a general surgeon, other general surgeons uh, probably wouldn't call me because they'd be looking after their own patients. And I'm mainly looking after the new admissions and people who are newly unwell and other things like that. The main referrals I'll get would be from other specialties of, you know, geriatrics or cardiology or whatever other specialties, orthopedics, who've got patients who potentially have patients with abdominal pain or some other general surgical issue and they need more expertise advice or a review and they'll get in touch with me uh, or from the kind of family physicians or general practitioners as we call them in the UK they would give me a call saying I've got this patient who's got uh, you know severe abdominal pain and uh, they've been vomiting and I think they've got a blockage of the bowel and you know can you see this patient it would mainly be from non-specialists in general surgery seeking further advice and opinion regarding a possibly unwell patient who may or may not need an operation. That's the bulk of the kind of cause I get. Okay, so we went quite far from the primary reason that I invited you for this interview, and that yeah. was that you're very, very active on social media. You just reached 1 million followers on TikTok. Yeah. Congratulations, by the way. 
And um, for those that don't know the channel uh, yet, I definitely recommend it because it's highly educational. So before diving into the content itself, um, let's just start with the combination of doctor and TikTok. It's actually quite uh, more often I would say that one might expect um, I am a little bit over 30 and I feel very old that I just discovered TikTok and realized that there's actually quite a huge crowd uh, there already mm. and it's not just about dancing and it's not just about uh, um, having fun which is a large part of TikTok there's a lot of yeah. um, educational and informative content so maybe just for from your perspective when did you start using TikTok? What was your first impression? What's your opinion about it today? What are the stereotypes do you think are known about the platform? I first downloaded TikTok and started using it back in uh, November of last year, 2019. And I was initially just a consumer. I was a viewer of content and, uh, you know, I maybe had aspirations at some point to release some videos, probably educational and probably, you know, doing the lip syncing stuff. That was the initial thing, just as a bit of fun as a social media platform. And I didn't think much of it because in November time of 2019, this was still, I would say, the kind of era of TikTok, uh, where it was still very heavy in dancing, music type stuff, lip syncing, and just kind of outright fun. There wasn't much in the way of educational stuff we see now. And I began to post some kind of educational content it was a far cry from some of the stuff I'm doing now, I must say. And looking back at some of my earlier videos, uh, yes, they provided educational value, but they were pretty boring, if I say so myself. And it was only in February of 2020 of this year, um, you know, I had just finished work. I had finished like a long 12-hour day and I was with one of my colleagues and I just had an idea and I just thought, hey, isn't it, you know, we were, I don't know what we were doing. I think we were reading some kind of weird medical facts and we came across some really, really interesting facts like uh, that we knew, but reading it again really emphasized it to us, you know, that, uh, you know, your stomach produces an acid so powerful that it can dissolve razor blades. So, you know, we, we learned about that in medical school, but just reading it again emphasized the kind of craziness of that. And, you know, we read a few of those and we thought, oh, my God, this is, you know, people should, we should talk about this. And, uh, you know, he held the camera and I sort of filmed like that, my first weird medical facts uh, video, which, uh, you know, suddenly, you know, I kind of a few hours later, uh, my phone was sort of just uh, blowing up and I got all of these uh, new followers and things like that. So, you know, I went from around 500 or so followers in February uh, to over a million uh, now. And that's in the space of about four months, which is uh, absolutely crazy. Uh, so that's my first kind of uh, voyage, my first kind of, you know, foray into TikTok and how that all happened. And I think, you know, the stereotypes were accurate. Initially, it was just a lip syncing, dancing, fun platform for kind of mainly a younger demographic of, you know, kids between 13 and 18 and maybe someone in the 20s. Uh, but it's quickly evolved, I would say, certainly in the last three to four months into people really producing lots of educational content. I mean, the main content I consume now is my own and other kind of medical stuff that I, other people that I follow potentially. Um, but when I was creating the medical educational content that I am now, the, I, I call it uh, edutainment, sort of, uh, you know, 
uh, entertaining education, edutainment or, or infotainment. And um, when I was doing that, there wasn't really anyone else who was doing that. And, you know, it seems that maybe inspired by my success or my growth, a lot of other doctors and healthcare professionals on TikTok have sort of used that similar formula and done a similar thing. And, you know, I think it's great that uh, I don't really see it as copying or anything like that. And I think it's just great that other people can kind of mirror my uh, formula and continue to educate. I mean, we need more healthcare professionals educating on TikTok. And, uh, you know, on the one hand, it serves to raise awareness about uh, important issues. Um, and also it helps to inspire the next generation to get into medicine as well. And in the current climate, it just helps to you know, relax people both at home and the doctors and nurses themselves being on TikTok and, you know, producing content. And it's fun for them, I guess. It's uh, one thing I think that many people wonder when they see all these videos from doctors and nurses and they're dancing and singing in the hospital is obviously how, how, when, like, how do you have time to do that? And it's not just that one, uh, let's say one nurse or, or one doctor would um, dance. It's uh, they seem to manage to convince like a group of five, six, seven uh, medical staff members to do a routine. So it's quite fascinating. Uh, can you give us a little bit of an insight in how that looks like? Yeah, I mean, I've never personally seen uh, any nurses or doctors uh, live in the hospital doing uh, a routine of video. And first of all, I have to congratulate them on all of these people who are doing these dance routines because their kind of choreography and synchronization is fantastic and it's a skill I lack. Uh, this is one of the reasons I don't do dancing videos and lip syncing videos because I can't dance and I can't sing. So uh, I stick to education, but I have to congratulate them. And also... I think, you know, there's some kind of uh, sections of the audience which may point the finger and may kind of ostracize these healthcare professionals making these kind of lighthearted, you know, dancing videos uh, and, you know, saying that, you know, you're not taking care of patients or how do you have time. But, you know, a lot of people do this in their break time. Uh, break time is free time to do whatever you want. You don't, you know, doctors and nurses and other healthcare professionals don't work 24-7. That's a misconception. We have breaks. We have before and after work. You know, all of these things can be done. And I think it, it's something lighthearted. You know, right now, everyone is riddled with anxiety and stress, especially healthcare workers who are coming face to face with their own mortality. They're seeing their colleagues die or pass away or being really sick with COVID-19. And this is a way to kind of, uh, it's a stress relief. It's like just the same as people listen to music or go to the gym, making a TikTok dancing video is a bit of fun. Uh, and I, I think people shouldn't be made to feel bad for doing any of that. Uh, a lot of my colleagues who are on TikTok do some of these dancing videos. And I, I think it's great. It's fun to see, um, you know, members of the public, especially young children who may think a career in medicine uh, is daunting. They see like a doctor smiling, dancing, having fun. I think that's really inspiring. If I was 11-year-old or 13-year-old kid watching that, I would say, oh, my God, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a nurse. Um, you know, and I think that's uh, really fantastic, actually. The question, though, that I keep bumping into is uh, how 
does your management feel about that? I mean, do they know that uh, doctors do this content? Are they worried about it? Uh, I don't know what the situation is in the UK, but I know that in the US um, there's like a high fear of liability issues in general in healthcare um, and in making mistakes. So um, I don't know, did you, or maybe just, you know, looking unprofessional by doing that did you get any comments like that does i mean i'm assuming that with one million followers some of your colleagues know about your project yeah i mean there's a lot of my colleagues at work have definitely recognized people from tiktok and uh you know occasionally if i go to the uh, a and e the accident emergency in my hospital there'll be some nurses who say oh my god you're the guy from tiktok or oh you're the tiktok king you're the tiktok doc uh yeah it's nice but uh in terms of management, I think it's it's hard to remain anonymous and not have people know what you're doing on TikTok. And, you know, I would say 99.9% of the feedback I've got from my colleagues, certainly, and friends have been, you know, really good. Uh, they like what I'm doing. And I use that platform to, you know, educate young children and an older demographic as well. My significant, you know, I've got significant um, a percentage of my demographic in their 20s, 30s, 40s and above as well who all watch my content and I've received good feedback. Um, and also you can raise important issues. I mean, I did a video uh, about uh, George Floyd. It was a sort of objective educational video about how he died, the actual underlying physiology of how a knee to the neck can cause the issues that, you know, led to his demise. And that managed to reach the last time I checked almost 3 million people on TikTok alone. And it was shared, you know, tens of thousands of times on Instagram and Twitter. I'm not on Twitter, but I was told reliably by some colleagues that it was shared on Twitter to, uh, you know, mass appeal as well. So I think, you know, it, it's a it's something which has a great reach. And uh, I think that's why it's so important. But I think um, in terms of management, knowing of people on TikTok, I've not had any comments, untoward comments from anyone from my hospital management or anyone else. And I think you just need to be in the UK. We have the GMC, which is the governing body for doctors. It's the General Medical Council. And, you know, any mistakes a doctor makes, whether it's a question of probity or, you're, you know, you're lying or fraud or doing something that would go against the code of conduct uh, that, you know, a doctor should kind of aim to achieve they would be flagged up by the GMC and you could be suspended or have your license uh, removed or, you know, various other penalties. And, you know, there, there's guidance for doctors about being on social media. There's various things. And I think, you know, as long as you're compliant with those things, you know, you don't breach patient confidentiality. Uh, you don't use your platform to sell, um, you know, or advertise things which could be perceived in a negative light and you don't kind of spread false information, you know, all of these things. Uh, I think you're fine. You know, if you're just providing educational value, I don't see a problem with that. It's the same as if a doctor made a video uh, about the heart and explaining how an ECG works and uploaded that to a YouTube, made a YouTube video about it. You know, that could be seen in a similar light. I mean, I could do... I could do a one minute video talking about the heart and, you know, someone else can upload a 10 minute video talking about the heart on YouTube, but YouTube doesn't face the same scrutiny as TikTok, maybe because it's a uh, still as yet unvetted and new kid on the block. So maybe that's why, but, you know, 
as long as you remain within the confines of the guidelines set out for doctors, you know, that could be in the USA, I'm sure the governing body for doctors in the USA, the you know, Association of Physicians or whatever it is, has these guidelines, or if they do, if you stick within that remit, I think you should be fine. One thing that I wonder is, uh, what is the attitude of professionals um, uh, towards TikTok, somehow my perception is that many see it as uh, unprofessional, as just, you know, too focused on entertainment. But I think that's like a stereotype that comes from uh, those that don't use it. So this is just kind of my, my personal opinion. But um, a lot of the really good content, a lot of meaningful content is presented in a, in, in a new format. It's raw to a certain extent, it's educational, it's useful, it's interesting. And I think that the fun part uh, just addresses that um, personal uh, side of each individual, you know, so when you are in contact with other professionals, you don't see them as people that like to have fun in their free time. And I think that TikTok just managed to get in this niche, you know, creating fun content, but serious content as well. So then, especially from the journalistic perspective, it's, I think it just uh, highlighted a new dimension of how content can be presented. TikTok is basically the next in line of uh, a long running chain of uh, short format social media platforms. I mean, in terms of medical education, I can speak about quite comfortably because I've been involved with medical education for around 15, almost 15 years. Um, you know, starting off with just text-based blogs and websites to then going on to YouTube to make videos and then jumping onto Instagram, the, you know, in most recent memory, the shortest format with one minute videos and well-curated video snap, uh, or, you know, picture snapshots. And then now to TikTok, which is potentially even shorter format. I think, you know, people are slowly just wanting smaller and smaller chunks of bite-size, uh, you know, information that they can digest. People are busy nowadays, busy professionals, busy students, you know, in, in every aspect of every life. We're all busy and we have minimal time. So we just want the most high yield condensed information. And that's why TikTok is appealing. And actually, if you look at you know, the description that TikTok gives itself, it calls itself an entertainment platform. It's not an educational platform and it's certainly not a political platform or anything like that. It's entertainment. Now, entertainment, you can kind of devise that and stretch that to your own imagination, which is why most of my videos, if you watch them, uh, it will bring a smile to your face in some way, you know, whether I'm talking about serious subjects, but with an interesting twist, you know, one of my uh, recent videos, uh, which, you know, did quite well was, you know, talking about how, you know, apple seeds can kill you. So if you consume, you know, several hundred apple seeds, uh, and I explained about the physiology about how apple seeds can get digested in the body, and then it can create hydrogen cyanide, and then that can cause, you know, uh, problems with, uh, you know, the muscle contraction and nerves and things like that. Uh, and, you, you know, you can, it can be uh, fatal, it can be lethal. Uh, and, you know, I just filmed that in my kitchen and filmed some apples and things like that. And it's a serious topic and introduces kids and other people as well to the concepts of anatomy and physiology and all of these things. 
but you know the premise is also quite uh, it's a lot of physical comedy and uh, kind of one-liner kind of kind of punchlines and things like that you know you know, you can bring in talk about the how an apple a day keeps a doctor away and you know all of these things it's it's showmanship it's entertainment but also you know in the midst of all of that it's providing some uh, education and if you want to reach a large audience you can't just give them education because people won't be interested in that you need to dress up that education in, in a nice fancy suit and that nice fancy suit includes having these stickers and gifts you know little animations uh so maybe some music in the background uh, maybe you're pulling some funny faces that i often do in my videos uh, you say something in a really exaggerated way all of these things combine to give the perfect cocktail that audiences would then, you know, drink uh, and they would enjoy it. That's what you need to do. And not just giving them serious facts because, you know, you wouldn't want to listen to that. That's why you've moved away from maybe listening to, you know, a 20 minute YouTube video where they take about 15 minutes to get to the point and then they lure you in and then they give you maybe one minute of the stuff you're wanting. But in TikTok, it's right there from the first two seconds you have that. You can swipe away from the video if it doesn't catch your attention in the first two seconds. That's what you need to do. It kind of makes me wonder, you know, what's gonna happen with the serious content with books, uh, for example. I mean, all this consumerism and short attention spans, I just, you know, can't avoid thinking that this might have a long-term negative effect in the way people are capable of paying attention to maybe just conversations, having meaningful conversations, because having meaningful, long philosophical uh, discussions perhaps about society about the future does require you know just thinking uh, thoroughly uh, about things taking time for that reading books and book re reading books takes time and it seems that you know to a certain extent platforms like this are just taking uh, time also away from from that yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's a bit of a chicken and egg situation. Um, are people's attention spans getting better with each generation? And is that why people like these shorter format videos and um, social media platforms? Or is it the other way around where the attention spans are getting shorter because of the rise of these platforms? It's difficult to tell which ones come first. And I, I don't think anyone can truly answer that. Uh, you know, we're flooded with technology We're you know, we constantly have access to 24 seven Wi-Fi, you know, across the globe. That is, you know, uh, whether, you know, someone's living in a, you know, a favela in Brazil to a slum in India to a high rise apartment in uh, New York, everyone pretty much nowadays has 24 seven uh, Wi-Fi with internet access and we're flooded with uh, technology. So we, you know, that's why they call it on all these platforms, the homepage is called a feed because we're literally force fed all of this information all the time. And my thinking is, uh, yes, potentially it could take away from people going outside socializing and all of these things, but you know, if if uh, if I was a parent and I had a fourteen year old who was glued to his TikTok, I'm uh, just watching social media, and I couldn't get him away from that, and I tried my best. I would rather he watches educational content on social media than just watch um, endless, uh, you know, prank videos on uh, TikTok uh, or lip syncing videos, which maybe provide no value other than just simple entertainment. Uh, so that's the argument I would make for that. But you know, I think. 
especially now more than ever with lockdown, uh, you know, this platform has given people an outlet to actually do something positive, you know, moving aside from the medical education side, there's a whole ton of other educational stuff. So, you know, people showing people how to code or, you know, how to make this or, and, you know, this, uh, or how to make this song, how to edit this. And there's so many uh, different types of, uh, you know, sectors within TikTok education that, you know, someone can actually learn various little life skills just on TikTok. And what it does is it also provides a community. So a lot of people, big creators on TikTok, they occasionally do a live stream. And when you're doing a live stream that allows you to connect with your audience and allows some kind of a, a two-way relationship where you're just, you know, answering questions that your audience may have. And, you know, often I would uh, you know, I went on my live stream yesterday and I was just had a conversation with uh, some of my fans and they often ask some interesting, maybe not philosophical questions, but, you know, deeper questions about uh, what was your worst moment as a doctor. And, uh, you know, I would kind of talk about that in length. I would, you know, give them a story about, you know, maybe the first time uh, I had a patient who passed away and I talked about my emotions and my feelings and things like that. So, I think it's up to the content creator and the user, you know, the user base to have that connection. And, you know, I think, you know, there, there are there are creators out there with tens of millions. You know, I'm in the grand scheme of things, although I'm at a million, I'm a small creator in the grand scheme of uh, TikTok. But although I'm at a million, I feel that I have a really good engagement, maybe more so than a lot of other big creators with my followers and fans, because I have regular lives and uh, I try to kind of respond to all of their questions and really engage with them. And as I mentioned, these kind of questions that I get and I give them insights into my life. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's that connection you need to build with your fans and you can negate the negative aspects that are associated with social media if you build uh, and if you you know forage that relationship with your kind of user base what would your advice be for those that are thinking about starting to use tiktok but are perhaps shy when it comes to creating content do you have any suggestions guidelines what kind of guidelines do you stick to uh, I don't, uh, I, you know, specifically for TikTok, I wouldn't even think about any guidelines. All I would say is, uh, you know, in my kind of experience, anecdotally, just making TikToks, if you spend a lot of time making a TikTok and a lot of time and effort, and at that time and effort that you spend into making a TikTok frustrates you and you feel, okay, this really needs to get views and you're worried about views and likes and all of these things, more often than not, your TikTok will not do well and you won't have fun doing it. And if you're not having fun doing it, your charisma and personality won't come out and that will show in your engagement and following and all of these things. Most of the videos I produce, I enjoy making them. And it's a lot of the stuff is topics that I'm comfortable talking about. So that comes across and I just try to have as much fun. And that fun comes across the screen, even though, you know, I'm geographically and temporally, I'm you know, distance from my fans, they can see my kind of fun and enthusiasm and attitude and all of these expressions conveyed through the screen. Uh, and I think that's the key there. You just need to be yourself and you just need to post stuff. I mean, if you look back to uh, my videos I did back in November and even December and January compared to now, it's a huge evolution. You know, it's like two different people talking really. And it's just a learning curve with anything. Whether you're learning to use a video editing software, you're not gonna be great day one. It's a learning curve. You'll be great maybe after six months. Same when you're learning a new sport. You know, you need time to grow into the sport and then you, you know, become incrementally better. 
And the same with TikTok. It's like any uh, you know sport or thing that you're learning. You know, you just need to practice at TikTok, as it were, and get used to the different. You know, how to use sounds, how to edit, how to do this. It, it all takes time. And for me, that time was around you know six or seven months from when I started, and that's that's what it is basically. How long does it take you to create one post in average? Because in your case, you use a lot of uh, graphic materials to uh, illustrate uh, what you are talking about. So a lot of an anatomy pictures, a lot of uh, x-ray scans and things that I imagine take some time to dig up. Yeah, it certainly can take some time. I mean, I would say in each post, the length of time it takes can vary. But... Um, you know, when I first was posting and when it, my videos were becoming successful, especially, you know, something as simple as the weird medical facts, uh, you know, one of those videos could maybe just take me five minutes to make. Um, but, you know, I adapt to feedback and I adapt to the wants of my audience and what, you know, their feedbacks, so they need to be responsive. And my first videos didn't have subtitles and I got, you know, a flood of comments from uh, people who were hearing impaired. Uh, who said that, you know, especially when I have my beard, they can't really read my lips and understand my video. So could I use subtitles? So then I started using subtitles, but then using subtitles for uh, a one minute video, it takes time because you need to look through the video and then type out exactly what you said. And then you need to edit the time segments when the videos were. And, you know, occasionally then you need to add music. And like you said, I use a lot of background pictures to demonstrate my kind of complex medical topics. So I need to look through Google to find, you know, the perfect image, which not only fits in the screen, but is high quality enough and shows what I want without showing anything maybe graphic, which would violate the terms and conditions of the TikTok kind of community guidelines. Um, you know, all of these things. And, you know, for... An average post, I would just estimate, I've never kind of timed myself, but maybe to create and then edit a post until it's posted kind of door to door, I would say maybe it could take half an hour and sometimes more, sometimes more. Um, so I often find it the best policy to just when I have a day off or, you know, when I've got a lot of significant time, I will just film a few videos in one go so I can just release it throughout the week. Do you think it was easier for you to start publishing content on TikTok because you're also uh, very familiar with YouTube and YouTube posting? Uh, you are basically the founder of the Aussie station. Um, so mm. perhaps you can tell us a little bit more about that. The abbreviation uh, stands for Objective Structured Clinical Examination. I had to look that up. Yes. So maybe you can tell us a little <laughs> bit more about the YouTube channel that uh, you have. Yeah, so that was really my first uh, jump into social media education back in 2011. Uh, this is when I was still a medical student at Imperial College and I had just finished my OSCEs, the Objective Structured Clinical Exams, which are basically practical exams where uh, we have to examine patients, you know, do a kind of a heart exam or a lung exam and do all of these things. And you need to show them that you can, you know, examine a patient the right way with the correct technique. And... You know, sometimes to learn that you're taught by other doctors and there are books and all these things. And I noticed there was a huge gap in the market for videos on YouTube, which would show students how to do the perfect, uh, you know, knee examination or how to perform an ECG or how to take a blood pressure. All of these things, there's a gap in the market. And then these exams met students all over the globe 
need to do these form of exams, whatever they're called, they may not be called OSCEs everywhere, but that type of examination is done everywhere. And even the junior doctors, sometimes when they start, they sometimes forget some the kind of intricacies of some of those examinations because they can be quite complex. And I thought with one of my friends, I thought, let's make these videos and put them on YouTube and it can help the medical students in our medical school, the younger ones, and I can probably help a lot of other people. We started filming those videos and my university also had a kind of a, a filming society. We used their camera equipment, you know, it was some good quality camera equipment because obviously we didn't have any of that. They had the sound, they had kind of the microphones and everything and we had a clinical simulation environment where we could have the patient bed and we had various kind of clinical models and I got a couple of my friends to be kind of pretend patients for the examinations you know we did the whole thing we you know initially we started completely amateur and raw just without any script and we did it and I think the first video we did this is my first time kind of coming on camera I couldn't stop laughing and smiling after saying each line and I think the first minute took about you know 20 takes uh, and we thought this is going to be a long day and actually the first video to film it I think it took about two or three hours uh, but we persevered and over the next kind of few weeks and months we churned out a lot of videos and the editing time took hours sometimes whole weekends uh, and we uploaded the videos people really liked them and this was the really early days of uh, medical education on YouTube and I've just literally come off a virtual conference today where we had uh, around 2,000 people across the globe and I was talking about similar things about evolution of social media and this was the real I say the bad old days of YouTube where there was not a lot of medical educators on YouTube and kind of we were the first amongst the pioneers of medical education on YouTube in the OSCE station uh, and you know there was lots of poor quality information out there and a lot of non-English language stuff so which isn't very broadly generalizable uh, the accuracy of information was also suspect we made sure that all the videos and content we did we kind of showed it to senior clinicians or experts in the field so if we did a uh, cardiovascular examination we would show it to a cardiologist that we worked with and he would say no this is wrong or make sure you add this in and you know we would storyboard it and make sure it's accurate information and I think we were the, one of the first to kind of bring that to the YouTube world uh, and we began to kind of grow steadily and but unfortunately I you know then I became a doctor not unfortunately but I became a doctor which you know, then took away a significant chunk of my time and one of my friends got really busy and he kind of pulled away from the project and another one of my friends was also busy. So there was a sort of, um, you know, unfortunate uh, hiatus in the OSCE station for a few years and um, unfortunate hiatus in the OSCE station for a few years and I didn't fully appreciate the power of social media and YouTube especially and I've resurfaced with the Oscar station I've started doing things again and I've begun to grow again slightly um, but you know I, I think that's why the, the YouTube initially was successful um, especially when you were kind of one of the first few medical educators on there um, and yeah I mean it, that that's kind of then helped me 
um, you know, open other doors in medical education. You know, people got to know the OSCE station more, especially in the UK. And I was approached by the University of Sunderland uh, to be a, a lecturer there. And with Imperial College, where I graduated my alma mater, they wanted me to be a lecturer for medical students there. So that kind of really sparked and began my journey as a, you know, as a medical educator in the traditional sense, giving lectures, but also in the kind of the uh, new wave medical educator, maybe doing more online educating. So that was my kind of journey and story with the OSCE station. But I think uh, I am planning on rebranding the name the OSCE station because a lot of people don't really understand what it means. I mean, you have to look it up, which tells the story. I mean, because it's not a very common term unless you're in healthcare. So I'm probably going to just rebrand that to Dr. Curran, especially since my kind of TikTok has taken off and uh, I'm a lot more known now in the kind of social media world. It's better if I keep everything standardized throughout. So I'm probably going to have it as Dr. Curran. So people know it's me and they can kind of hopefully trust my content. You did uh, also a few research papers about uh, social media use. Last year, there was a paper published about online digital media and the uptake of YouTube-based digital clinical education content. And also, you analyzed if uh, patients educate themselves about uh, the procedures that they're going to go through and to which extent does that help. So perhaps you can uh, say a word or, or two about those findings, especially in today in the era of fake news when it's so much more important to have uh, the understanding that what you see might be false information. Yeah, so, uh, well, I'm pretty glad that you discovered all those research papers. Um, you've done definitely done your research as well. Uh, I've always been very interested in traditional academic research as well. Uh, that's always been a strength and skill of mine right from uh, when I started my career as a doctor, not necessarily as a medical student, but certainly I grew into it as a, uh, as a doctor and I was fortunate to have supervisors who really nurtured my kind of desire to n do more research and clinical research and especially education because that's something I, I actually practiced but maybe didn't research. And um yeah so the i basically did some research about looking into social media trends and how specifically the oski station had this global reach and i analyzed all the various analytics that were available to me on youtube the watch time and the audience retention and likes shares and all these various metrics and i performed some statistics on that and I, you know I've got this paper published and I've been involved in various other kind of um, educational stuff about haptic technology and education and all of these various other things which have also been published. I think the key thing there is especially with regards to you know the lay public or the public who aren't aware of all the intricacies in healthcare and with the rise of social media it's very easy to use Dr. Google or looking at uh, WebMD or, you know, Healthline and all these various online sites and just typing something into Google and you don't know which is authentic and which is not. Um, and that's the worry where someone has a disease or a symptom or something and they look at something and they potentially take away the wrong information. And that's the real one of the one of the drives for me to be more active in social media and just to be almost the face of medical education on media that's one of my aims uh, on social media and traditional media is to try and nullify some of these myths uh, and also to counter fake news and false information uh, you know i mean 
One of the first kind of myths uh, I encountered when I was starting was uh, about the use of apple cider vinegar and how it can be used to clear gallstones. I mean, it can't, uh, and that's potentially very dangerous to do. And you know, all of these myths uh, percolate through social media. And the more you do research and the more you're active on social media, giving accredited information, the more it helps patients as well. The medical education world has gone from, you know, in the kind of early 2010s when I first started to being very um, healthcare centric. So it would only be accessible uh, and it would be useful to healthcare professionals. And now social media medical education is now in a format that is accessible to a 13 year old boy to, you know, a 70 year old uh, woman who's got some health problem. And I think that's the most important thing. There's limited jargon so everyone can understand. And at the same time, it's also useful for medical students and nurses and people with some interest in healthcare, as well as the general public. Uh, and we need to be careful of, uh, you know, the dark side of social media where you've got these supposed uh, influencers and you know kind of people who claim to be you know doctors and often they're not doctors uh, and you know they make all of these claims often for money they're maybe promoting some erroneous product or medication or pill uh, and they may have millions of or hundreds of thousands of followers and you've got impressionable youth and you've got other people believing these things and wasting their money and potentially harming themselves in the process so I think that's why you know accredited doctors and nurses and healthcare professionals need to be more active to actually counter the sort of uh, bad side of uh, medical education and health education on uh, social media. You know, as we've seen on Instagram over the last few years, a lot of these reality TV stars and famous celebrities promoting detox drinks. Um, and, you know, you can see how this will have an impact on someone's mental health. You, you know, maybe have, uh, you know, young teenage girls who are suffering with some sort of body dysmorphia or some anorexia related issues, you know, who want to lose weight and see these, uh, you know, these TV stars who've maybe had plastic surgery or some various other, you know, they've had personal trainers and nutritionists and they've achieved, uh, you know, a body with a low body fat and muscles and whatnot. And you see these impressionable young people looking at these celebrities as idols and then those same idols then say, I got this body by drinking this tea, uh, not by doing diet, exercise and training and all of these things. So then they go and buy these teas and they neglect exercise and all these things. And it's a vicious cycle where then that doesn't work or they're starving themselves. And that's how you propagate mental health problems and kind of body issues and all of these things on social media. So, you know, that's just the tip of the iceberg. And there's a lot more. I mean, you've got... Uh, anti-vaxxer conspiracies. More recently, the pandemic documentary, which was taken down uh, on various social media sites saying how, you know, coronavirus is not a real thing and it's man-made and, you know, does 5G cause coronavirus and all of these conspiracies and myths. I mean, these are just a handful of popular ones in kind of recent months and years. But, you know, there's an endless supply of quacks and myths out there that, you know, want to sell you something or sell a course or sell a book. And, you know, I think we need to be careful of all of that. That's the real danger of social media now. Did you see any such uh, problematic content also for uh, medical doctors? I think by today it's quite obvious that, yeah, there's a lot of 
useful educational content also on YouTube. And YouTube is the number one educational tool today. I think uh, learning is becoming more and more visual, uh, and it's easier to see a, to look at a video where someone explains to you how you have to do something um, compared to reading a manual uh, guide that takes you through the text and images of, let's say, a software program that you want to learn how to use. A few years ago, perhaps it might have been uh, surprising to hear that uh, doctors are using YouTube for, for learning. Again, I must emphasize that I'm talking about years back, you know, when YouTube was a different medium than it is today. But still, to which extent do you think it's uh, reasonable to wonder if doctors can come across potentially problematic information or is that a worry that we don't need to really take into account because each specialty each country each hospital has their own guidelines doctors do go to medical congresses still where the latest uh, reliable information are shared i mean you certainly have doctors having their own solicited verified and you know ratified information from kind of you know on closed systems so congresses or other sort of specifically healthcare associated websites or uh, you know portals where you can go and it's not accessible to just anyone maybe it's just accessible to surgeons who want to view surgical videos or things like that there are those platforms which are there but you know it's a lot easier just on your phone to put up the YouTube app and search something. YouTube is not something which is peer-reviewed publication on there. You can publish a post instantaneously. Uh, it's 24-7 access and all of these things make it facilitate you, know, you to just go on YouTube and search something. If I wanted to quickly look up uh, maybe just to refresh my memory, uh, maybe an operation uh, that I'm not very familiar with that I just want to kind of know about a bit more. And, you know, if I look at it, it's available on there. But the key there is uh, who has uploaded that video or, you know, is it correct technique? And, you know, are they doing it the right way? And is the content appropriate? All of these various, uh, you know, doubts can, you know, plague your mind. Uh, and I think those doubts will remain as long as YouTube remains kind of a free to publish non peer reviewed platform. Uh, and like I said, I mean, there are various portals and other libraries online, which are restricted and accessible only to healthcare professionals. And there's an incredible body of evidence on there. And to publish on those systems, they are peer reviewed by uh, kind of online healthcare bodies, which kind of grade the and score the quality of the videos. And you know, you know, what you're going to get is accurate good information um, but you know if you know what you're looking out for you'll be able to find good videos on youtube but sadly not everyone will know exactly what they're looking out for and that's that's just the case with youtube you have to take some things with a pinch of salt and sometimes it's just good to maybe whet your appetite you look at something and you think oh yeah and then you might look into it in a bit more detail somewhere else maybe more reliable that's all i can say with youtube to go back to TikTok for, for the last question, do, can mm. you mention any of the weird facts that are going to come up uh, next on in your explainers? Um, well, if you basically, if you eat enough carrots, so maybe if you eat about uh, three large carrots a day for a month, 
uh, your skin can turn orange and it's actually called keratinemia because the high levels of vitamin A. I don't think I'll ever run out of weird medical facts um, just because medicine and the body is so interesting, you know, and you're, you produce enough, you know, saliva from your mouth in a lifetime to fill two whole swimming pools. All of these facts are just kind of make you think about things and it's just absolutely you know wonderful about the human body. And I think these little snippets of facts, which are fun, but also it can inspire someone to just get into medicine because they hear that one fact and it just, you know, triggers something in their brain that thinks, oh, actually I want to learn science. And then that sets them on their path to becoming a doctor maybe. What got you into medicine? Where did your interest spark from? So, I mean, it's a pretty cheesy answer, but I've always felt like I wanted to become a doctor. One was because my uh, mum is a doctor, so I always looked up to her and seeing the things that she did and kind of the stories that she would tell me definitely inspired me in a big, big way. But also when I was growing up, one of my friends who was very close to my neighbor, you know, she had a spinal deformity. And, you know, I was very close to her and I always kind of thought to myself, I want to be you know, a doctor one day or a surgeon and I want to fix her spine. And I even told her this, like one day I'm going to fix your spine. Uh, I must have been around seven or eight and she may have been around kind of five or six. You know, that was one of the other kind of second kind of driving factors for me. But thankfully, uh, well before I became a doctor, she, you know, received some kind of surgery for that which is you know very pleasing but you know i think those two things were definitely huge kind of moments for me into deciding that career and fortunately as i progressed through primary school and then high school and then university and all of these things i was always good uh, at the kind of sciences you know biology and chemistry and all of these things so it just slowly became a natural fit for me to do that You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. If you like the show, do leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast. This is the fuel for the show and helps others interested in digital health find the show as well. To browse through past episodes and find more about the podcast, go to www.facesofdigitalhealth.com. And of course, stay tuned. Stay tuned.